Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Mark Blacksill. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm great, March. Thanks for having me on. And if I understand correctly, you are in an airport. I am in an airport, yes, so there will be some background noise. Yep. And, um, yeah, so folks, it's always sort of funny. You'd be amazed um, the interesting places that people sometimes are when they call in for this show. In this case, we'll hear a little bit of airport background noise, and that's fine. So, um, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. Saturdays and 3 p.m. Tuesdays on 101.9 FM KVSH. You can learn more about the show at voiceofvashon.org or visit my website, marchtwisdale.com, to catch up on shows you've missed. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we're going to dive into the show here Mark, can you go ahead and give folks a sense of who you are and what you do in the world? There's sort of two tracks in my life, March. One is uh, doing a mix of management consulting and vesting right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then because my youngest daughter got a diagnosis of autism, I found myself plunged into the whole second track of life, which is advocacy for autism, the issues surrounding autism. I've written a few books the age of autism of seven years ago, wrote a book called Vaccines 2.0, and then earlier this year, my co-author and I published Denial. That is that is a lot to carry when you end up finding yourself thrust into an area of... Well, it's an interesting journey. My, my youngest daughter is now not so young. She's about to turn 22, and so she's leaving the school system. The thing that happens as a dad, and she was two years, nine months when she was diagnosed, mm-hmm. and you know, it's a pretty tough verdict to get for a little baby. And I found myself doing two things. One is trying to find the best doctors that I could, the best experts to figure out what was up with her and what to do. Mm -hmm. And then I also tried to learn from other parents. And I live in Boston and there are a lot of people around Harvard Medical School. And I found myself in that body of experts. Sorry for that noise in the background. Don't worry about it. You're Um, at an airport. (laughs) And what I learned pretty quickly was that they were all saying the same pretty hopeless orthodoxy. They're repeating it, Mm. which is autism is all in the brain compartment. It's largely genetic. It's a low prevalence condition. And the prognosis is pretty, pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. And then the other track was I learned from a lot of parents and you get online and there is sort of a community of people And the thing I found out was autism was exploding. Autism rates were going up. It's not all about the brain, but a lot about the whole body, the gut, the immune system, and it affects the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, But autism is not a disease of the brain. It's a disease that affects the brain or condition. Uh, And then you find that a lot of parents are doing things. They're treating their kids differently. They're dealing with inflammation. They're dealing with special diets. There are all kinds of biomedical therapies that are not part of the orthodoxy. Some of those are helpful. And that group of parents was also very motivated and very smart and a really good group to learn from. And they knew a lot more about what was going on than the experts at the Harvard Medical School. So that was sort of the experience that set me on my journey regardless of how all of my listeners might feel at this moment in time based upon what they've heard from friends, family, doctors, media about the issues surrounding autism is that we can all agree that the 
medical world is going to give you one viewpoint on how to resolve your issue. Now, my experience, March, is that most are kind of downstream of the science in their fields. Mm-hmm. And pretty much, you know, particularly with our broken healthcare system in, in America, right. you know, they, they practice defensive medicine. They must pursue an approved standard of care. Mm-hmm. And that standard of care gets produced by some scientific process that's upstream from what physicians tend to do. And often it's, it's driven by some orthodoxy. And the, the problem with autism is that, you know, the orthodoxy doesn't say anything. It doesn't have any understanding. Autism is just a, a list of symptoms mm-hmm. and behaviors. It's not well understood as a biological phenomenon. And so doctors really don't know very much, and they have to pretend like they do, and they're constrained by the orthodoxy. And what we're learning, and, and particularly this issue of the time trends in autism, is that the whole orthodoxy about autism as a condition grew up under the presumption of constant prevalence and low prevalence. And really, in the last 10 or 20 years, we've come to the realization that autism rates have exploded in a very short period of time. Right, right. So let's touch on that for a second because you used a couple of terms I want to make sure because a lot of times people are driving down the road or maybe they're out gardening and they may not catch every term. So you said, um, I think you said constant prevalence and low prevalence. Can you define those? Yeah, it's just the rate of cases in a, a given population size. And when my daughter was diagnosed, was back in 1998, the party line, the orthodoxy on autism rates said there were about uh, four or five per 10,000 or one in 2,500 thereabouts. Wow. Today, you know, the numbers you hear about are one in 68, one mm-hmm. in 45. And really during that period was the observation that rates were exploding. The number of cases were exploding everywhere. They were exploding in California, which was the first place that new numbers came out. Uh, they're exploding in school systems all over the country. The CDC started doing track. The rates are exploding, and so is the orthodoxy. It blows up the idea that autism is this sort of rare genetic neurological condition. There's this um, book. It's called the DSM. It's where all sorts of conditions are defined, and then they update it. So back in the 70s, maybe as late as the 80s, homosexuality was listed as a mental deviancy. If you were homosexual, you were mentally unwell. You had a disease. And today, most people are going to disagree with that. If you were to go back 130 years before the germ theory was really understood by everyone, and you're the person saying, there's these little invisible things that we can't see, and they're in the water, and that's what's making people sick. There were a lot of people who thought you were crazy. But after 20 or 30 years, you know, microscopes, proof, people didn't think you were crazy anymore. So throughout history, science And our understanding of the natural world, our health, our bodies has evolved continually. But every once in a while, we find ourselves on the cusp of something that's going to shake and rattle the existing belief so much that there's a resistance to learning more about it. You've sort of been in that situation, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, I have. And and the thing, Marge, I like to say about autism, uh, and this is sort of my elevator speech, Mm -hmm. is that before 1930 the rate of autism in the world was effectively zero. Uh, and then starting in, the ni- in children born in the 1930s, child psychiatrists began to observe this cluster of symptoms that they labeled autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but for a long time, the rates of autism were really low. 
you know, maybe to the extent that they were measured, something like one in 10,000 or even less. And then around 1990, the rates hit an inflection point and they've gone vertical. Uh, and now we have these rates of one in one in 68, one in mm-hmm. 45, and we haven't really seen the leveling off yet. And so it, it's a national emergency. So something is going on. Something new and terrible is happening to a generation of kids. And that's this reality that I've been trying to, to surface. Yeah. And that's what a lot of our books are about. I want to come back to 1990 a little bit later because I've got some thoughts about that inflection point. But first, what I wanted to do was um, have you share with our audience a little bit about the Canary Party. I remember watching video when they f- were presenting before Congress, I believe, and and being like, oh, wow, there's an organized group of parents. And now they're all over the place. But back then, I think you were one of the first. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, it's all part of my journey, which was, you know, I started out as a dad, you know, and just trying to help my daughter and then found myself realizing that there was this orthodoxy that was getting blown up, that that the paradigm of autism that people have been living with for decades, that it was rare and low prevalence, uh, was wrong, just mm-hmm. manifestly wrong, and that therefore it required you know, a new paradigm, one that embraced the notion that something was changing in, in the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started to do research. I wrote scientific articles. I published some articles. I ended up writing a book. Uh, in 2010 called The Age of Autism, which made mm-hmm. the case that autism was new and it came from the environment and it became, you know, and, and one of the interesting issues was mercury exposure. So mm-hmm. we wrote that book. And then, you know, and I was active on panels at the National Institutes of Health and, and, and the CDC. I was trying to do my best to make change within the institutional environment that was managing the issue and and should have been responding to this explosion in rates. Right. And the thing I began to realize was the institutions were failing. They couldn't grapple with a change in the orthodoxy. There were too many people too committed to the old system of beliefs. And the most persuasive candidates for the, the new cause were politically incorrect to address. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me that the issue was less about science because the science was manipulated and distorted and suppressed and censored. Mm -hmm. The issue was much more political. The science had become politicized. And if we were going to make any change at all, we needed to get more active politically. And so that's what the Canary Party was. was The idea was, um, you know, these kids are our children, my child, were like the canaries in the coal mine. They were warning us of a subtle change in the environment that was going to have devastating consequences. Right. And what we needed to do was to stand up for those victims, you know, and look to the most likely sources of injury. And that that process was one of political awareness as much, if not more, than scientific awareness. So right. that's how we started the Canary Party. That makes a lot of sense. I, I had not known that you had actually been involved specifically and directly with the CDC. Um, so you sort of, it's sort of like um, someone who's like, I'm going to get on the school board and I'm going to dive in and try to fix yeah, the school. Exactly and that. It's like, how do we get people to realize what are the blocks in the road that are preventing us from improving the situation? Right. Well, I was on a couple of CDC. I was on a panel, gosh, 2004. It was about vaccine safety, some of the issues involved in vaccine safety. And it was really, really obvious. And so one very 
clean example is mm-hmm. in, in aviation. We have the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, which promotes the airline industry and regulates it, mm-hmm. and that's fine. And then on the issue of airplane crashes, we have something called the National Transportation Safety Board, mm-hmm. and it is a completely separate and independent entity, and they have no responsibility or no involvement with the industry. They simply investigate crashes and work on improving safety of design of, of airplanes. In the vaccine business, we have the Centers for Disease Control, which both is in charge of promoting and regulating and recommending vaccines for the public. Flying the airplane, basically. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, and promoting air travel is a great thing. And then they're in charge of safety management. And honestly, that's a conflict of interest. You know, you can't be in charge of safety while you're also trying to tell everybody that they should get every vaccine on time. What if your recommendations are wrong? Sometimes people jump to the idea it's money and it's about trying to stop people from being greedy and bad. But actually, it's about human nature. When your job is to achieve a goal, you tend to really, on a human internal level, everyone wants to believe that what they're doing is the best thing. Now you're emotionally invested in being right, not because you're arrogant, but just because you want to succeed and you want to help everyone. Well, I think that's right, although I do think money is involved, and I yes. think some bad people. Uh, yeah. But I think, by and large, I agree with you. And I've seen a lot of these people. There is a very strong belief system and yeah. a culture. You know, and again, this is one candidate for an environmental cause, and there are you know, pesticides, and there are other things, and other chemicals are mm-hmm. in the mix, too. So we shouldn't focus 100% of our, our emphasis on vaccines. But right. you know what? It's a big, big part of the so there are, there's this whole culture, and they're in the CDC, but they're also in academics and universities and companies, and they all hang out together, and they mm-hmm. believe deeply you know, in the virtue of their mission. And you're right. I mean, it, 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 they're not bad people. They actually they are doing wonderful things for the world. And you know what? If there's a, a force that comes up that says, hey, you know what? Maybe you guys have been overreaching. Maybe the schedule is kind of bloated. Maybe you need to scale it back by a little or maybe by a lot. You know, maybe some of the people that don't want to vaccinate their kids at all, you know, maybe they're on to something. For that community, that's heresy. That's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, unacceptable speech. And they're deeply troubled by that. And they can't cognitively manage that idea. And then at the same time, evidence of something like autism, which is new, which is exploding, where all sorts of parents are saying, I had a perfectly normal child, and then all of a sudden they got their shots and, and they had a seizure and they were never the same. You know, there are thousands of examples of episodes like that. And any rational person ought to say, you know, that evidence is really important. We ought to consider it. But in fact, can't accept that idea. So they have to reject the notion that anything is happening in autism and that any increases are real and that any you know vaccine reactions or vaccine injuries that are documented must be false. It is really funny, actually, you know, when you don't pay attention to something at a deep and consistent level and you're just you know, you're picking up on the narrative, the, the corporate media narrative, whatever, the industry narrative, then they're not stupid. They're smart. They know how to produce a narrative that makes sense, that sounds right, that you nod your head and go, yeah, yeah, I bet that's true. And yet it's when you're paying attention 
that's when you start to notice all the holes and you start to see all the water dripping through, the cracks everywhere. And so it was this hilarious story I heard recently. It was a friend of a friend, so it's separated by one person, but it was it was still it was a grandma and she's watching her grandchild and she's spending the day with the baby and everything's fine and normal and she goes in to see the doctor. The baby is given a vaccine and within about five or 10 seconds immediately starts to have an anaphylactic reaction. You know, within a minute, there's like three nurses and a doctor. They're calling 911. They're freaking out. But as you said about that idea of the orthodoxy and that this is what I love about the title of the book, Denial right? You're so much right. in denial that you right. have to come up with some plausible excuse. And what they told the grandma was she must have been stung by a bee earlier in the day and is just now reacting. And that's People common. People are very creative, yes, in their denial. <laughs> it is important, though, March, to, to be tough on this one, which is there is a lot of money involved, not just belief systems. The vaccine business is a $25, $30 billion industry, and that's a conservative estimate, but that's what you can add up from the public companies that report revenues. It's mm-hmm. a very profitable industry. They make 30 35% margins. It's got the same margins as drugs, and people like to say, oh, vaccines aren't profitable. No, once upon a time, they were less profitable. Mm-hmm. Now, they're a big moneymaker for yeah. Merck, for GlaxoSmithKline, for Pfizer, for mm-hmm. Sanofi Aventis. Those companies have a lot of influence and they spend a lot of money. They lobby in Washington. They mm-hmm. lobby the CDC. There is this sort of phenomenon of regulatory capture. They control positions in the CDC. One example, the best example, Julie Gerberding. Is, is Julie Gerberding running the CDC when all this stuff was coming out from 2000 to 2008 during the, the Bush administration, mm-hmm. right after the Clinton administration, where some of it started, you know, non-bipartisan. And the Clintons yeah, were, yeah, the Clinton yeah, started it, but the Bush administration didn't fix it, mm-hmm. and Gerberding was in there, and then she, she basically suppressed the evidence of the explosion in rates and the and the likely connection to some of the, some of the vaccine exposures. And then with you know, and then she left the government. She left the CDC. And in the, a year to the day after she left government, she went to work for Merck as the president of the vaccine division, right. where she was responsible for promoting the profitability and growth of right. the Merck line of vaccines, which included MMR and Gardasil, the most spectacular one. So yeah. you know. That's a spectacular, that's called the revolving door. And then she immediately acted on it, you know, in the minimum amount of time. That's corruption. That's institutional corruption. It may not be a payoff, but it is a payoff. Mm -hmm. It may not be a payoff like cash in a suitcase, but it's a a payoff by Merck for good behavior. She's running an agency. And so there is corruption involved. And and it's part of what goes wrong in Washington, D.C., which is you have this sort of circulating group of people that go in and out of government or they go into lobbying. And it happens everywhere. So this is what I have found really interesting because I happen to live in a progressive liberal bubble environment. And what I find, of course, fascinating is that if you talk about Monsanto and their influence you know, over the USDA or other, you know, organizations or whatever, people will be like, oh, yeah, I hate Monsanto. And they, you know, they're messing with things and they're the revolving doors there and they get all upset. And you talk about Wall Street and their influence over people. You talk about Alec. You know, you talk about all these different things and people, you know, military industrial complex, whatever. People get the revolving door. They have a problem. But then we get, they don't even like pharmaceutical industries. They're mad about Vioxx still. You know, they, they, they're angry about insurance and healthcare, all of that. But then there's this 
like that's where you talk about orthodoxy, this teeny tiny little golden ball that floats around. And on the inside of that is that every person involved in that arena of medicine must be a saint. Yes. And then here's the problem, Mark, which is autism is a threat to that community, that whole system of belief to their careers to their, you know, because there's money, there's money for research, there's money in jobs, there's money mm-hmm. for patents, there's money for inventors, there, there's money all over the place in this mm-hmm. business. And the notion that the industry actually should stop growing, maybe even it should shrink, you know, uh, uh, tighter rules around safety, you know, that's a threat to the industry. It's a profound threat. And so what then happens is the industry needs its talking points. It needs its own narrative. It needs to start pitching that narrative to media. And, and then, you know, the network news is one, and CNN are some of the main vehicles. And guess what? You know, you watch, you know, ABC News on any given night. Uh, you know, what dominates the advertising? Right. 50% pharma ads. Right. And so the whole industry is buying, and, and there's an old saying in the business, that you know, eventually, you, you know, and eventually is the important modifier, eventually, you get the news that the advertisers pay for. And if your advertisers right. are 50% pharma, you're going to get pharma-friendly news. Well, and, and if, so, I, if I understand yeah. correctly, it's actually closer to about 70% of advertising dollars spent in media, that's print, radio, television, online. We're hitting almost 70% of that is pharmaceutical advertisement. And I believe that the pharmaceutical lobby in Washington, D.C., outspends oil and gas combined two to one. They have lots of money to spend, whether it's 50 or 70 percent. Right. You know, I, I have data, uh, Mark, we put it in our book. We actually watched a week of you know, the nightly news in right. the three major networks, and it was 50 percent pharma in terms of the, you know, the commercial count. But think about that. That means that. everything yeah. else in the world is being advertised to the average person is squeezed into only the remnant 50%. I mean, isn't that Absolutely. so? Yeah. We, and we know so, we have, what's that um, giant, you know, the, um, the opioid, you know, epidemic. I mean, drugs, legal drugs are a problem in this country. Exactly. So the, the important thing is they control the channel to get the narrative out there, uh, which is, again, why we've form the canary party this is why this is a political thing because it's mm-hmm. money and power mm-hmm. it's, it's not about science or facts or evidence it's about money and power and so what has happened and again this goes back to to the book that you know i would encourage people to read which is denial is that there has been this very creative alternative narrative created about the rise in autism which is you know what autism isn't a problem it's always been with us we just have Great doctors doing a better job finding the diagnosis. And, you know, if we look back in history, we've had all these autistic people, you know, Isaac Newton and Bill Gates and Einstein and William Cavendish is one example. They were all just autistic and we didn't have a a name for it. And now, you know, becoming aware of the the autistic state of being and it's it's just a different way of being and we should celebrate it. Uh, and we should celebrate the diversity of those minds as a, a, a different kind of identity. And we shouldn't do anything about it. We should just be comfortable. And you know what, March? That's a creative and interesting argument, but it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's what we write about in the book, you know, to kind of show that all those claims, that's just a fairy tale. Right. But they've sold it pretty hard. 
So I'm going to go ahead and do a quick station identification. Then I want to come back to that because I'm looking at page 178 right now. Um, this is near the end of the book, actually, folks. This is a um, quite readable book. It doesn't have a ton of photos, so but it's also not too huge. It's 180 pages long. And then, of course, at the back, there's just, you know, they do a really good job of sort of backing up everything that's in the book. And I'll let you talk a little bit, too, about Dan Olmstead when we get back. So for folks who are just now joining us or came in partway through, this is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And today I'm talking with Mark Blacksill, who's hanging out in an airport on his way from one place to another, about one of the books he's written called Denial, How Refusing to Face the Facts About Our Autism Epidemic hurts children, families, and our future. So this book, Denial, I mean, right now, there's a lot of people in the world who are very concerned, for example, about the ideas of catastrophic climate collapse, and there's concern about people who are in, quote, denial. So the concept of denial is something a lot of people are thinking about right now, a bunch. One of the things that I think people don't realize at all is that kids who have autism, especially, um, well, all kids with autism at all ranges within the ASD spectrum, they actually continue to grow up. They don't all stay 18 months old, do they? No, they don't. In no, fact, they my don't. daughter is uh, turning 22 in a few weeks and she'll leave the school system uh, where she's been you know, well attended to for a long time. And it's a big change. So you've got families who their child who's young ends up having the development of a condition that's labeled as autism. And that completely, usually a lot of times blows the family out of the water economically. It's hard on the marriages. You know, it can be really stressful. Then 20 years later, 178 is it? The tsunami of autistic kids is just starting to hit the social security disability services system. And now a big added strain is on its way. And it says here, the infrastructure to handle this surge in autistic adults, 80% male, mostly young and physically strong, often violent or frustrated might be another way to put it, and with relatively little capacity for productive work is non-existent today. Whoever bears the cost, they will be staggering, essentially, is what you're talking about. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the consequence of a surge in childhood onset autism, and, you know, and we've seen that you know, starting in since the, you know, around 1990, the early 90s, we began to see the, the curve pivot up, is that, a, you know, a, a child born in 1995, uh, is now, which is when my daughter was born, mm -hmm. is turning 22 uh, in 2017. And the thing that's happened is that, you know, for all these children, uh, we have a, an educational infrastructure where education is, uh, is an entitlement in our country. And so every child, you know, gets, you know, particularly disabled children, get an individualized education plan and they have you know, special needs schooling available. And that funding is pretty widely distributed, and it's locally funded. So where you've seen most of the burden of the autism epidemic falling is on local communities. And it's largely been taken up, uh, although it's rising and putting a lot of stress on the schools. But once you leave the school system, you're no longer entitled 
to benefits. You are eligible, perhaps, if you're disabled, uh, but you're in a whole different services environment, and a lot of that is federal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the infrastructure that needs to serve these kids, the funding shifts to a new a new area. And but you, you mean can, it shifts and, to it shifts to federal? Yes, that's which is the area that is struggling to keep up with what's going on in Puerto Rico and Florida and Houston and Southern California. So there's all sorts of big economic demands that are falling on the shoulders of our federal system, and and we're running massive deficits. There you go. um, And so here, with in the case of autism, we have a whole new you know category of benefits, which is Social Security income. And there is a whole new agency that gets involved, and they publish numbers on, you know, uh, who gets benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally, you start being eligible around 18, but, you know, you start phasing in those benefits. And my, my daughter isn't yet getting those, but we're applying. You know, in the 18 to 21 range is when people start getting eligible for benefits. And just starting in 2010, Social Security Administration started breaking out numbers of people with an autism diagnosis getting benefits. Mm-hmm. And that number started out in 2010 was very small, it was about 75,000 individuals. And then in five years, it more than doubled, and it's over 150,000 in 2015. So in five years, you had a, you know, a doubling, and it's just starting. Uh, and that's this, tsunami, and we call it a tidal wave, a tsunami right. of autistic adults that have been children, because we've now been managing this epidemic of hundreds of thousands and now rising above a million children, and the children grow up. And someone's going to have to deal with that. Uh, Parents will and parents do, but it's the nightmare of every parent of an autistic child, which is what's going to happen when I die. Because, you know, there's some point where these disabled individuals, and they're no longer children, become orphans. And in the normal world of typical people, you know, your, your parents pass on and you're we're all independent adults, but these are dependent adults, mm-hmm. and they're disabled, and they're difficult to handle. I mean, you, you quoted from the book, they're 80% boys. Some of them are big. You know, those boys grow into big young men. Right. Uh, they're often, you know, behaviorally, you know, they have behavioral issues. They, they get anxious. Uh, they get aggressive. Some of them, you know, inflict harm. And even if it's a young woman, they can inflict harm, and they can put themselves at risk physically and others at risk physically. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough problem. And when you have been an exploding population of disabled adults with autism, that's a problem we have not seen and they're just starting to see. I want to touch on that really quickly because two things. One is let's go sideways for a second and look at how our country is completely failing its military veterans because that is also an exploding demographic of young men who become PTSD injured or brain damage injured or whatever and then they come home and we know for a fact that our government system our military system our cultural system is not fully providing for those people who went out and served us so why would we expect necessarily that there's going to be the public will behind taking care of a bunch of people who haven't served us and aren't going to be able to serve us because they're disabled. We know 
how human beings in this country have previously treated institutionalized individuals. And then we have our mental health disaster where basically the jails are filled up with people who are mentally ill and are not being provided care. We're one catastrophic mess after another when it comes to actually taking care of our own people in this country. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, and to all of those problems, which are all profound and severe in their own ways, we're going to have to add a new one, right. which is adult autistic people. And, right. you know, one of the things we know from the Social Security data is we have a population of people. Now we call it intellectual disability. We used to call it mental retardation. It's a pretty stable and well understood population. And that population size hasn't grown much. It's about a million and a half adults. If you consider the growth rate, of the autistic population, mm -hmm. and you extend it forward, you know, a couple, three decades, we're talking about, you know, a, a U.S. adult population that's more than three times the size of that. It's 5 million by 2040, uh, right. and up from 175,000. Right. We if, have if, no if we were, clue that's, how to manage that population. Yeah, if we were just to maintain our current rates of autism onset, if we want to look at it that way, and not imagine that it's going up even though it looks like it is going up let's just maintain it you ran those numbers out right um, page 178 um, that by 2040 u.s population of autistic people would be seven million that's five million adults plus two million additional autistic children at that point by 2040 and right. what I found interesting, you use the word exploding, and uh, it's reminding me that there are some people who want, desperately want to believe that that's not true. They want to believe that the number of people with autism right now is identical to 500 years ago, that it's always been the same, that it's just a genetic thing, and that there's nothing we're doing to cause it. Therefore, there's nothing we're responsible for doing to prevent it. We just have to deal with it. And what's interesting is, what year was it that the DSM was updated and they created the Autism Spectrum Disorder Diagnosis? When did ASD get created? Well, there were stages, and um, ASD is actually, for a long time, was a misnomer. The actual term in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, was actually the pervasive developmental disorders, and those two terms were synonymous. What people say is, we created ASD, we broadened the umbrella, and that is why we have more diagnosis. So, so when did that come people, down? People wander around with misconceptions, March, and I don't mm -hmm. it's important to be precise. Right. The, in 1980, the pervasive developmental disorders were added to the DSM. That was DSM-3. Mm -hmm. They were revised in 1987 with the DSM-3 re revised. And then in 1994, they came out with DSM-4, and the pervasive developmental disorder category was revised and expanded to include Asperger's syndrome. And that's what people began to refer to commonly as the autism spectrum, although it was never a formal term uh, in, in the DSM, not in the DSM-4. Actually, it has now become the official term in DSM-5, which I think was implemented you know, a few years ago. I forget the exact date. Okay, 2013. Yeah, it's yeah, the, uh, the okay. My point being, we can show that autism rates began significantly increasing, like you said, in the early 1990s, and yet it wasn't until more than a decade later that what a lot of people, as you say, casually go around with misconceptions, that the full concept was fully implemented in 
DSM-5, I believe. If there's a gap between when we saw a rise and when that label was fully implemented, then you can't blame the increase on the new label, can you? Uh, no, not at all. And in fact, I think the whole the DSM-5 was actually a narrower definition than the DSM-4, and they did away with the, def- the category Asperger's. What a lot of people uh. like to do, though, March, is to blame the increase that started in the 90s on Asperger's, that the inclusion of Asperger's in the DSM-4 was the, the single cause of the autism ep- epidemic, and all we're doing is adding to the numbers uh, cases of Asperger's. That's false, and it's specifically false because we know that the 1 in 68 number, which is 1.5%, uh, which is the latest number from the CDC for the rate of autism in children born in 2002-2004, they used to not break out Asperger's, which they were criticized for, including by me. And then they started in more recent rounds of their autism surveillance reports to break out the different subcategories of the PDDs, including Asperger's. And the Asperger's cases were at most 10% of the total. So, you know, even if you take 10% off of, you know, 1.5%, you still have, you know, 1.3, 1.4%, which is up from 1 in 10,000. So there's no way that the addition of Asperger's to the DSM-4 had anything to do with the increases. There may be, you know, a, a lot of Asperger's cases, too. They may be part of the epidemic as well. We're probably seeing more cases of Asperger's. We don't have really good numbers on Asperger's, but for sure we know the common measures of the epidemic that we use, the 1 in 68 number, does not include very many cases of Asperger's. 10% doesn't explain, you know, the whole phenomenon. Right, right, right. So that's, again, one of these many myths that get propagated to try to dismiss the epidemic. So, so, okay, so a couple things I want to make sure we, we nail down right now is that this brings us back to the point, there's two points I want to make right now, which I think are definitely um, supported by a lot of the work that you've done with these different books, as well as people can go to, um, what is it, the Canary Party dot... CanaryParty.org. Dot org. Okay, great. The, the, the thing is that people who are out there who are rattling the cage on this issue, who are pointing to all the little canaries that are lying on the bottom of the cage, you know, how, whatever, the purpose is to try and protect fellow people, and to make our societal health as a whole better going forward. We want to protect individuals. We want to help the whole society. Not so much a desire of, I want to point out the bad people and make their lives bad. That's not really what people care about at all. Um, When you're dealing with this and your family life has been affected forever by this condition, you really just want to help other people not have to go down the road you've gone down. That's um, exactly right. The, the other thing is that um, you wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about, and I love, I'm going to go there right now because you were just mentioning how Asperger's is a very, very small percentage of the people who are suffering from and experiencing um, in a, you know ASD conditions, is that when we're talking about identity politics, and sort of, um, there's like, there's that TV show you mentioned, I think it's called The Good Doctor. Um, media and Hollywood comes along and sometimes they'll portray a certain image of a very complex issue. And people will, will unfortunately take that little tiny image and assume it applies to everyone. 
Um, we have so many people who are, the majority of people who are suffering from autism are suffering at a level where they really don't go out into public very much. They're, they're not seen so much, and they're very much invisible to their local community. Many people know someone who actually has um, an autistic child or an autistic family member, and they won't even know because it's not necessarily talked about. It's not. So what is it that, that you find that you're able to do to help people begin to grapple with or recognize sort of the reality that is being hidden from them? Raising the reality is one of the things we try to do. Um, I, I think one of the other things we try to do is puncture these myths. And there, there are two things that have happened. And, and one of the reasons, Marks, that we wrote the book was to take on two different books that were widely celebrated, that took different approaches, you know, to denial. One ah. of them was called neurodiversity, and it was this celebration of autistic traits and saying that we've always autism always been with us and, and celebrating the identity politics of neurodiversity. Uh, the second one is more to this point, you know, the, the normalization of autism. It, it was uh, a book called um, In a Different Key, and it was written by two ABC News reporters, one of whom was the mother of a child with autism. So she she was less inclined to sugarcoat it as, you know, it's it's just Asperger's. You know, they were willing to confront the enormity of the problem, but in large part, you know, the thing they were doing it's it's like watching some sappy 60 Minutes episode or you know the ABC News Person of the Week, you know, where they've got three minutes and they find some you know interesting person that has autism and they celebrate them. There was this this young man who you know, drained seven three-point shots at the tail end of a high school basketball game, and he was on the spectrum, yeah, but a very high-functioning yeah. case. That was all the news for a long time. Yeah. That was, a, you know, isn't that wonderful that this that this team of high school basketball players welcomed their, their Asperger's classmate and let him shoot, and you know what? He was a pretty good shooter. That mm-hmm. became, you know, the, the part of the normalization of the process. You've had shows like... The Big Bang Theory, which you know, and you know the main character there, Sheldon is not explicitly labeled as Asperger's, but he certainly has a lot of autistic traits, and they play autism for comedy. Now we have this new show, The Good Doctor, which turns you know a very high functioning young man with an autism diagnosis, and and in some rare cases there are savant properties that go along mm-hmm. with autism. And they, into this medical genius. And so it's all about celebrating, um, you know, these odd, unusual cases. And that's fine, because if you have people like this and they're funny or they're successful or they're independent, that's a wonderful thing. So there's nothing wrong with that per se. But the problem is, you know, the epidemic that we're facing isn't about those people because they're going to be able to take care of themselves when they grow up. Right. The, the, the problem we're facing are the dependent, nonverbal, anxious, gastrointestinally ill, you know, young men who are, you know, who have their mothers cowering in, you know, behind a, a locked door or who are wandering from their house and drowning or who are smearing feces on the wall because they, you know, they have sensory processing issues and GI issues. That's the harsh, ugly reality of autism that we need to call attention to. And it's not the happy talk story on ABC News. 
you know, where we're trying to celebrate happy endings. For most of these kids, it's not a happy ending. It's going right. to be, you know, mommy and daddy die. And if they're lucky enough to have siblings, the siblings have to take up the responsibility. And more likely than not, they're going to run out of money. They're going to be institutionalized. There's not going to be a good place for them to go. I interviewed a woman who wrote a book called White Lies, and the, she was a lawyer. And anyways, the, the woman who she ended up helping get through vaccine court, you know, when she was in the hospital back in, I think, the seven late 60s, and her child had been injured by the DPT shot, they basically just came to her and said, okay, best advice is let us take this child. We'll go put him in this institution. You know, you can visit him a couple times a year if you want, but he's never going to be healthy, normal. You can't take care of him. The government will take care of him for you. Relinquish him to the state. I don't even think we have that existing in most states. So what is a sibling in his 50s or her 60s to do when mom and dad pass? And, you know, who do you relinquish to? We don't know because, you know, I mean, best, you know, best cases, and I've run some rough numbers, we probably just have a few thousand adult uh, or senior citizen uh, individuals with autism living in our population if Mm -hmm. we run the numbers. Uh, So we don't have good good models and they're all scattered around they're one-offs you know right. a, you know a unique case and you know in a community we haven't had to deal with you know hundreds or thousands in, in in any given state so we don't have models we don't have business models we don't have care models we don't have physical infrastructure we don't have the land you know we don't have the buildings we don't have the caregivers right. uh, we have nothing and so the first thing we need to we first of all we need to face the reality that this is an exploding phenomenon the other thing is we need to turn off the spigot. You know, we need to yeah. stop because you know, if, if we if we apply the number of one in 68 mm-hmm. to a one tranche of the population, you know, which is, you know, children under 25, 25 or under, um, that's one problem. If we're applying, that's an $80 million population times, you know, one and a half percent. You know, that's a little bit over a million. If we apply it to a population of 330, 350 million, 400 mm-hmm. million a few years down the road, that's, you know, we're, we're talking, and you say 2% of, you know, that's 8 million, that's, that's the 7, 8 million number that I was quoting. Right. That's, you know, many, many orders of magnitude. That's an order of magnitude above. So the only rational thing to do is to stop it. We right. have to stop the epidemic. Right. You know, and then we have to ca- take care of that injured, that surge of injured people. But, any, you know, any rational observer, you know, one, if you face up to the fact of this epidemic, you have to face up to the fact that, you know, you, we can't afford to let it go on. And so that's right. part of the argument that we make. Right. So get people clear on just because it's so hidden and so many people are unaware of it. It's like it's like um, it's like the the avalanche coming down the mountain. But because the trees are so tall and you're deaf, you have no idea it's coming. And then all of a sudden it's going to make it through the nearest line of trees and it's just going to be on you and you'll never have a chance to actually run or try to get away or anything because you have no idea it's coming. But if you know uh, it's coming... That's a great metaphor. I'll, I'll use that one, Marsh. Right? <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. Yeah, but if you know it's coming, you have the ability to try to respond. Once again, knowledge is power. Yeah, the other metaphor that I've used, and we used it at the end of our, our first book, The Age of Autism, you know, where we talked about this problem as well, uh, is that you know, I, we've seen the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's a train, right? Mm-hmm. Which is uh, you know, similar to the being deaf in an avalanche, but uh, right. it's a big problem no matter how you slice it. Right, right. Well, um, we are getting close to the end of our time, 
and um, I'm just going to double check here. We So the normalization of autism, a bit of a problem because it sort of further deafens people to the real problem that the, the situation is. Um, we've talked about the dynamics of denial, some of the things that are going into that, the belief systems that exist, the money interests that exist, the revolving door, and people are just scared. They're, you know, what I find interesting, I think let's close on this, is that we've been here before when thalidomide caused massive damage to thousands of babies. It did not do that in the United States of America because actually our health regulatory agency at the time wasn't comfortable enough with the safety studies that had been done and denied them access to sell thalidomide to pregnant women in America. But it got through in Europe and it took a while. There were, there was a significant period of time, injured babies being born before they finally you know, figured out this is what the cause is, and they stopped it. They, as you say, shut off the faucet, right? Well, um, I think a better, that's a good example, March. I think a better example is actually the whole phenomenon of pink disease or acrodynia, which was, you know, uh, the result of mercury poisoning, where they used to use calomel as a medicine for infants, and, uh, you know, and it was used for constipation or diarrhea. And for a long time, you know, we had this, you know, horrible disease of infants that was, and it, it's a whole different bio, biological situation, mm-hmm. but it, um, it, it was caused by inorganic mercury exposure. And they did finally figure out that acrodynia was caused by these mercury treatments, and they took mercury out of medicine as, as a result of that, uh, and acrodynia disappeared. So that's the kind of, you know, I think, right. Phenomenon better better yet acrodynia that's the kind of insight we're going to need if we want to turn off the spigot. Uh, so that that's you know that's. But was that, there that a pushback? Did the industry that was selling that medication did they push back for a period of time because they didn't want to not be allowed to sell their product anymore? I don't think that was as powerful an industry as the as the industries we're looking at. Right. Um, right. And, you know, it was sort of a home remedy. It was. Uh, you know, uh, it was in the 40s uh, and 50s when that realization came came out, and so uh, we weren't, you know, as as uh, surrounded by pharmaceutical propaganda as we are today. Right. Um, so it was mm. a slightly more naive and innocent time uh, when people did the right thing, and now we are much more bathed in corporate spending and media and and uh, and all the narratives that go along with that. Um, right. But I but like that's, that. That's you, what we need. We you, need an acronym yeah. moment. You know? Yeah. You gave us an example of success of when we figured out what was the problem and we did the right thing and a serious condition just was wiped out. Exactly. The, the one thing, I, you know, a final point I would yes. want to get across yes. is just to go back to the main theme, which is, you know, this idea that autism has always been with us is absurd and wrong. And one little calculation I like to use to illustrate that is, you know, if we had autism before 1950 at the rate we have it now, and let's take, you know, one and a half percent or one in 68, um, that what that means is before 1930, which is the first cohort of children where we observed autism, that, you know, uh, uh, population studies have been done that say roughly 
there were 100 billion human beings born on the planet before 1930, Mm -hmm. plus or minus. And that's not an exact number, but that's sort of the order of magnitude. If autism is ancient, if it's always been with us, then that rate, you'd have to apply that rate of 1.5% to 100 billion people. That means there were 1.5 billion human beings born before 1930, and no one bothered to notice. No one right. ever saw it. It's not no in the medical journals. It. it was right, right, not, right. Not, but not in literature, not in, you know, not in a medical journal, not in a, right. uh, in, in a doctor's description, not in a story, right. uh, not, in, you know, uh, not anywhere in history w- would you find this stuff. And, you know, it's possible to look back in history, and we do that in our book. Uh, and, and when I say that the rate of autism before 1930 was effectively zero, that doesn't mean that there weren't scattered cases mm-hmm. that might have met the criteria, but mm-hmm. they were staggeringly few. Right. And their rarity speaks to the rarity of the condition. And, and you would have had to have a billion and a half of them. Uh, right. And that, I think that just speaks to the absurdity. Um, well, we can there also... There hasn't been this population before, right. and, and you can't find it. Well, and can't we also just look to our senior citizen community right now? I mean, well, if we can extrapolate forward to 2040 based upon current rates, and we can say, you know, 20 years from now there's going to be this many people, then that means that if this has been a constant chronic situation and that it's completely normative and that nothing is different right now, then we should right now be living with the results of these same levels of incidents from 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, which means that our senior citizens right now should have, you know, a very significant proportion of them should all be autistic and should have lived their whole lives with autism. But no one talks about, you know, that. That's right, because they're not there. Right. They're probably in the U.S. just a, a few thousand, and that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not yet a senior citizen, but I'm in my 50s. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up and you'd never heard of autism. You right. uh, didn't see anybody, didn't know anybody, let alone one in, you know, one in 68. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that reality is pretty stark. Uh, yeah. It's common sense. It's not advanced epidemiological science that you need to apply. And, and if you, you know, if you take the red pill and accept that reality, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty stunning one. So one thing I, I want to yeah. do, Marsh, before I sign off, is, yeah. is just acknowledge my co-author, Dan Olmstead. Yes, please do. Um, uh, Dan passed away uh, uh, literally a, a week after we finished writing Denial. And he spent 10 or 12 years of his life working on the autism issue. And he did brilliant and amazing work. And he was a great friend of mine. And I, I really miss him. And I, I couldn't have, you know, we, we wrote this book, you know, together. We literally would have weekends where we would sit and, and read out loud and, and work through the, the text and the prose and, and did all the research together. Dan's just a great man. And we all really miss him a great deal. Yeah. There are many people in America who are very sad that he's not with us anymore. Um, all right. I want to thank you for taking time out of your life. I mean, actually, I want to thank you for hanging out probably on a, on a hard plastic chair in an airport and, and making the time to be on the show with me. Thank you very much. Well, I apologize for the buzzers and uh, public service announcements behind Thanks for having me. Oh, I think it's hilarious. Everyone can just pretend that I like, I actually learned how to do uh, music mixing and I intentionally put it in there. (laughs) It's ambiance. So, um, sounds great. Yeah. I've got to get through security and get on my plane, Mark. So I I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. Have a safe flight and I will be in touch. Sounds great. All right.